the title of this morning's message is Matters of First Importance. Um, your YouTube feed is not fuzzy. Uh, Pastor Allen is not preaching this morning. Um, I was offered the chance to speak this morning and to uh, to encourage those of the faith while we are uh, while we are enduring the situation, and I was I was honored and I appreciate the the opportunity to speak to you. The text of the passage is out of First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses one through eight. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Lord, be with us as we go through this message. Help us to remember the things of first importance. Help us to, to walk in your word as the situation gets desperate, as people struggle over basic resources that only weeks ago were readily available everywhere. Help us to be the light to the people. Help us to show your example to all those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel I preach to you. Paul wasn't giving the people a new doctrine. He wasn't giving them an unfamiliar message. This is what he preached to them. As I read previously in Acts 18, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth teaching the doctrines of Christ to the people. Um, in that time... He made many converts, the church formed. But after Paul left, the church struggled. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that Corinth, uh, as Pastor Allen spoke on a couple weeks ago, was, was a wild place. And so the church was constantly being tempted by what was going on around them. And some people had come in teaching wrong things, and many in the church were being deceived by these things and following after ways they shouldn't. Important things, not the most important, but important matters were being neglected. And much of Paul's letter deals with these matters. But as he begins to close his letter to the, his first letter to the Corinthians, he brings them back to the central focus, the thing which is most important. And that is the gospel of the, that is the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. This is a stern reminder to the Corinthians. They accepted his message. And many were still holding firm. Some had clearly fallen away. But he makes it clear that in this there are, they are still standing. So there's always that element of the church that will hold fast to the teachings that are true and right. 
The importance of this message cannot be understated. If you look in Acts chapter 4, while Paul or while Peter and John are being questioned after healing the beggar, you start in verse 7. It says, When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And is, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved, or which we must be saved. Holding fast to this word, this word that brings salvation, the only, the only means of salvation, and I will say that a few times today, it is the only way. This perseverance is taught throughout the Bible. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, the people of God will always continue in faith. At one of the hardest times in Israel's history during the period of the kings, you had the prophets running for their lives, scared, attacked, beheaded. Uh, the king was a wicked man named Ahab, and his scorn was well known. So much so that the prophet Elijah prayed to God, asked God when God spoke to him and said, What are you doing here? The prophet answered him very pointedly and said, I am afraid for my life. They are killing your prophets. They are, just, they, are, they are now seeking after my life. And God said, God commanded him to go and to crown new kings in various places and to appoint another prophet. And he said, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, for every mouth that has, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There is always a remnant of faith that will persevere. The times we are in today may be trying, and some people may give in to, to what they desire, the, the need for survival, or the need for, for just, just inner importance, or inner, uh, acceptance. But those of us who are true to the faith will always remain committed to Christ and to his resurrection. They may doubt at times. I'm not saying this perseverance will make you perfect all the time. You will, you will not be perfect until we receive our resurrection in our glorified bodies. But, the, but those who believe will always persevere, will always hold on. We may stumble at times, but we will always come back to our feet and continue following the path that we are called to. Paul warns that, uh, that this would be true unless they, at least they had believed in vain. Some follow for a time and then turn away. There are, there are many, many who you will see who grow up in church and at, at summer camp or VBS or some other event believe they are following Christ and they, they, they have what they believe is a conversion experience and they feel 
like they've been saved. The simplest test of this is time. As I said, those who are in the faith will persevere, but those who are not will fall away. Chief example of this is Judas Iscariot, who followed Jesus for his entire three-year ministry, but ended up betraying him and going, as Jesus said, to the place which he was destined to go. Simon Magnus, as we read in Acts, uh, was so convincing in his testimony of his conversion that he was baptized by the apostles. But it was later seen his true nature as he tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit to use for his own gain and to use to magnify himself. Um, It is no irony that Simon Magnus translates as Simon the Great. Um, He did not persevere to the end. And in that, we have the evidence of those who are not bought by the blood of Jesus. An interesting example in the New Testament writings are those found in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, where Paul is writing to Timothy about the doctrines of faith and about the resurrection. He He says this of two men, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like a garain. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. There were men teaching that we had already ascended, that this was the higher existence, that this was the resurrection that was promised to believers through Jesus Christ. But what does vain belief look like? It looks like intellectual assent. James says, you believe there is one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Intellectual assent, having a theological sense with no doxology, with no love of Christ, with no care for the truth which you know in your theology, is a vain belief. This takes form in two ways, basically. Historical acceptance. Yes, I believe Jesus lived. Yes, I believe those things happened. doesn't change anything about me. And legalism. The belief that doing the things you are told is the means of salvation and not the grace that we are afforded in Christ. Vain belief also looks like emotional realism. This is what I talk about when people have an experience. Uh, much of conservative evangelicalism, uh, sadly, is rooted here. Worship is about having a feeling, having that experience, renewing that experience. Um, they will program their worship so that people have an emotional response. They will write their sermons, not to present the truth of God to the people, not to feed the sheep, but to try to trigger their emotions, to try to trigger them to feel a certain way. The only one who can bring true conviction is the Holy Spirit of God, and that is done through the right preaching of God and the right singing and worship to God. So often we confuse worship as being about the people sitting in the pews. Today that's pretty easy for me to not confuse because there's only two people sitting in the pews today. But it's not about who we're speaking to It's who we're speaking for, who we are singing for, 
And that is the God of heaven and earth. And without that focus, it's just going through the motions. And it's not a true faith in the Lord of, of our salvation. It also looks like ungrounded praise to their Jesus. This is a sense of doxology without any theology to back it up. It's the exact opposite of the first version, where you have people who are like, Jesus is love, so I'm just going to love, and I just want to love on Jesus, and this, that, and the other thing. But they have no concept of who Jesus is or what he commanded. They have no sense of the gospel he brought or the commandments that he gave to his followers. Remember, it was Jesus who said, you are my friends if you do as I say. There is a command for obedience, just as Jesus was actively obedient to God for the entire life of his time on earth during the incarnation. So we are called to be obedient. Paul told people to follow, to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Was Paul always perfect in imitating Christ? No. Paul would be the last. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. In our text this morning, he says, as one untimely born, last of the apostles, and least deserving because he persecuted the church. Paul had a right understanding of his sin, and that is missing from so many today who claim to be Christians. Many in that group are, fall into this category. Well, theology divides. I just want to love people. If we love people, we're okay. Theology does divide, and right theology will also divide, but it will divide sheep from goats and the saved from the unsaved. The legitimacy of Paul's gospel. Paul preaches a gospel to these people, and it's interesting to note how we come to this. Again, in Acts chapter 18, Paul had preached in Corinth. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And many who heard were believing and being baptized. Believing and being baptized. So important to the gospel work that we have today. He settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God. It's important to note that Paul didn't only teach the resurrection, but he always kept it in its proper place of being of first importance. There are other doctrines. There are important doctrines, things that we should cling to as tightly as we can. But they are secondary issues to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the same gospel that Peter had received from Christ. If we turn to Galatians chapter 1, we see the discussion he gives to the Galatians about this matter. In verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. I don't know if it was just divinely given to him uh, during the Damascus experience. I don't know if he received follow-on visions from Jesus while he was in Arabia. I don't know the means by which Jesus gave his gospel to Paul. But I know the Bible is 100% true and inerrant, and I know that Paul was not given his gospel by men but by revelation of Jesus Christ. This is important because Galatians was written largely in defense of Paul's ministry. Paul was defending 
his right to, to give direction and rebuke to the churches. And some would say, some have even claimed today, well, Paul got his gospel from Peter when they met in, uh, when they met in Jerusalem. But this isn't really possible because Paul, in the scripture, we see that Paul and Peter only met for two weeks. Jesus spent three years teaching his disciples. Interestingly enough, Paul spent three years in Arabia before returning. I don't think, as smart as Paul was, and as gifted a speaker as Peter was, I don't think two weeks would have been enough time to convey the full gospel message of Jesus Christ to Paul in such a way that he could speak with such certainty, precision, and boldness on it. This gospel, which Paul is reminding the people of, which he previously preached to them, which Jesus gave to him as he gave to his other apostles, wasn't even new when Jesus gave it to his apostles. It had been promised long before. The Jews had been promised a prophet and Messiah since the days of Moses. They were given the promise that one that a prophet like Moses would come and that the people would be subject to him and that they would follow after. David, Isaiah, many of the other prophets openly spoke about the coming Messiah and the coming servant in whom salvation of the people would be. And before that even, before Moses prophesied of the coming prophet after him, it was given to Adam and Eve that there would be a Redeemer. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 14 and 15, God has spoken, God has come down, He has found man in his fallen estate, and man has tried to answer for what has happened. And it's been a lot of blaming and a lot of other things. God begins His condemnations with the serpent who deceived Eve. And He says this, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel." This is known in theological circles as the Proto-Evangelium, which is a nice big seminary word that Microsoft Word never thinks you've spelled correctly, so I can't guarantee that I've actually spelled it correctly today. It basically means the first gospel. It is the first presentation that salvation is coming. And it comes immediately after man enters the fallen estate. God promises redemption. It's not clear how it's going to come. It will come from the seed of the woman. But that's all we know. We know that much. See, the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Savior in so many different ways, in words, in actions, in things that happen, in shadows and types. It's never perfectly clear, and it's not made clear until Jesus comes. The Bible can be said to be divided in three categories. The prophecy and coming of Jesus, Jesus' coming, and the explanation of Jesus' impact. It's a gospel promise that in due time, his anointed would crush the serpent. Paul delivers 
of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Today, in our Scriptures, we have four separate accounts of Jesus' ministry. I've chosen the Gospel of Mark because, honestly, I don't get into Mark as much as I should, and I saw this as an opportunity. But if you look at Mark chapter 15, we're going to hop around a little bit, but we're going to start in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. Go down to 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling insults at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And finally, in 37 through 39, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. It's interesting to note that on, on Twitter and in the news, the Pope gave a special dispensation to Catholics everywhere, allowing them to pray directly to God, to take their misery and their suffering directly to God, and to not need to go through a priest during this coronavirus and social distancing. It's amazing that as hard as, as Huss and Luther and Calvin and all the other reformers and Puritans preached, it took a microbe to reform the Catholic Church away from the need for an intercessor apart from Christ. But praise God, now millions of people around the world can go directly to God with their prayers. Unfortunately, this is not a novel creation. When that veil was torn in two, the separation between man and God was ended. The need for a priest to bring intercession had been completed. The sacrifice was perfect and acceptable to God. But Mark's gospel wasn't scripture at the time this was being written. It's a scripture we have been given through the continued revelation that continued through the New Testament. But when Paul says, according to the scriptures, he's not talking about Mark's gospel. He's talking about the same thing that's noted by Mark in that the scripture has been fulfilled. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and you start in verse 5, it says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have been led to the slaughter. Each of us, I'm sorry, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 
His grave was assigned with the wicked men, as mentioned in Mark. Yet he was with the rich man at his, in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he was poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and and interceded for the transgressors. It is amazing for a shadow, for a type, the specificity that is provided here, that he was numbered with the transgressors, and that's where his lot and death fell, but he was with a rich man in his burial. Remember that it was Joseph of Arimathea who had given his burial plot uh, a, a space for Jesus to be buried in his family tomb. Um, that we celebrate uh, on the Passover of that stone of that tomb being rolled open and the body of Jesus not being present. His death was with a purpose. Jesus didn't just die according to the scriptures. It's fascinating. It's amazing that his death so precisely, so precisely matches the prophecy provided in Isaiah and in other places. But that death wasn't just a death to prove that the prophets knew how to give prophecy. He died to save us from our sins. That was his purpose. Before his very birth in Matthew 121, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this that the transgressions of the people would be upon him, that the sins of the wicked, that the stroke of the lash would be against him for the sins of his people. This is the atonement. This is the paying of the debt of sin that we have owed in Adam from the beginning and continues through today and will continue until this world is made new again. But this atonement is limited. And this is a belief that not every Christian agrees on. This is a belief of the Reformation. Those who claim Reformed faith, who claim covenant theology of the Reformation, believe that that atonement is limited. But why? Two basic reasons. Because the alternatives are a universal salvation, that Jesus' blood covers everyone, and therefore everyone's sins are forgiven, and everyone is spared the condemnation that we each owe for our transgressions. This is not the message presented in the Bible. There are people who believe this. It's, it's called universalism. Uh, Rob Bell, several years ago, wrote a book called Love Wins, in which he portrays this view, that Jesus died for every single person so that no one would go to hell. The second possibility is that it diminishes the atonement. They were told you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people. He will save his people. The alternative, if the atonement is not limited, 
is that Jesus' blood only makes salvation possible. But the onus is on you. That you have to bring yourself to salvation. That you have to contribute something. As a great Puritan said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Your repentance is a gift from God, as the Bible says. Your faith is a gift from God, given in measure. The scripture actually says, he gives to each a measure of faith. Consider the fact that many do not have the faith to believe and be saved. But he gives to each a measure of faith. Given these two alternatives, I can see no other way but that the atonement is specifically limited to to Jesus' people, to the people of God, those whom he foreknew and those whom he chose from the foundation of the world to be his elect. The glory of the atonement was the bringing of rightness, the clearing of the debt of the people. This was not cosmic child abuse, as some people would claim the Bible portrays. This was a father lovingly sacrificing his son to save a people. But it didn't stop with that. Jesus' death for the sins of the elect provided the eternal solution to the problem of the fall. Turn, if you will, with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We see in verse 10, starting in verse 10, By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father, or at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool under his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. More of the scripture that Paul speaks of being fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But atonement has a limit, and not just in limited atonement. See, there's a multitude of promises, and it's not merely an atonement. The covering of sins does not guarantee one eternal life. It could just as well been that man was given the grace to have forgiveness of sins, and simply be obliterated, simply cease to exist with a clean slate from God. But that's not what we were given. We were given the promises of Scripture that not only would our sins be forgiven, but that we would have eternal life with our Savior. He was buried and raised according to the Scriptures. If we go back to Mark chapter 15, we see this continue to be played out. Mark 15.46 says, Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus is buried. 
In Mark 16, 4 through 6, he's resurrected. As it says, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, he is the place, here is the place where they laid him. This is the account of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it was prophesied in type in the book of Jonah hundreds of years before. If you look at Jonah 1 7, excuse me, 117, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. A great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry ground. Three days, Jonah... Some prophecy happens through speaking, and some of it happens through action. I am absolutely certain Jonah wished he had an Isaiah prophecy and not the one he had. A tremendous experience of being in the deep for three days. And an event that Jesus Christ points back to when speaking to the people in Matthew chapter 12. If you look at verse 38, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He told them right then and there what was going to happen. Just as it was with Jonah, just as the prophecy was set before you in the book of Jonah, in Jonah's life, being three days in the belly of the great monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Remember the people who mocked Jesus as he was being crucified? You say you'll destroy the temple and build it again in three days? They didn't get the connection. They continually did not get the connection between what Jesus was saying and what Jesus and what was playing out before them in his earthly ministry. Jesus goes on to say, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. As we read in Psalm 16, 10 and 11, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow my holy, your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness and joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. These are promises given to us through the psalmist in our salvation. This is the resurrection we are promised, the renewal of eternity with our Savior and with our God. Jesus further speaks upon this in John chapter 14 when his disciples ask him about his departure, and about what will happen next. He says to them, starting in verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the place to where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. So many people want to say there are other ways. There are other methods. You can do this. You can do that. There is only one way to salvation. There's only one way to God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. The promises are further extended, as Paul writes in Romans chapter, 10, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, where he says, If Christ is in you, through the bo- though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is a promise to the believer that is given by the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this is not an open-ended promise. This promise is very conditional. If Christ is in you, And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. This is not an open atonement. This is not universalism. This is not if you make yourself saved. If you make yourself good enough. If you are good enough. If Christ is in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Those are the conditions that are given. This is our only hope. Paul says, I delivered to you, which was of first importance, of very first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the Christian faith. Ephesians 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father 
of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The Christian church has many different denominations. There are many important beliefs that separate us and that we view differently. We have many believers that we can share great fellowship with, but we simply view secondary matters differently. And it is best that we, that we, that we work within our circles, that we preach the gospel we believe, and that we teach the doctrines that we believe. But it's the same gospel, though there are differences in doctrine. You cannot rightly claim to be a Christian if you do not hold firmly to the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the one perfect atoning sacrifice and the begotten Son of God. Mormons are not Christians. They don't hold to this doctrine as I have given it to you and as Paul gave it to the Corinthians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians for the same reason. They do not hold to the faith that was given. Early in the Christian church, creeds were developed as statements of faith, as a means of of distilling our basic doctrines. One of the most well-known of these is the Apostles' Creed, which says simply, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell, or Sheol. The third day he he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is the distilled belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His, his, his coming from God, His obedience to God, His death, burial, and resurrection as presented. It is important to note that when he says the Holy Catholic Church, he means the Holy Universal Church and not the big C Roman Catholic Church, um, as some have confused on that. Paul delivered the gospel of first importance. Clearly not the only thing he taught. He was there a year and a half. And not the only important matter of theology, faith, and Christian life. Look at the rest of 1 Corinthians. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about orderly worship. He talks about the need for sexual purity. He talks about the need to follow Christ in all and to not follow divisions um, by clinging to other people. There's a lot of important things that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but he wanted to make absolutely certain they understood that of first importance was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the prophecies of the Scriptures beforehand. Christians disagree on things. As I said, Christians disagree on the limit and and, uh, effectuality of the atonement. How is it made effective? Some will say that the atonement covered all, but is only effective for those who believe. Some believe that the atonement covers all, but you have to believe in order to receive its atoning effects. Perseverance of the saints. Some believe in, a, in a, a system known as once saved, always saved. Where if you come to Jesus, no matter how far you backslide, you will always be with him because you came to faith and you cannot lose that salvation. 
Christians debate repeatedly on the extent of man's free will and its role in salvation. Um, And it's important to note that very few actually believe that man has no free will at all. It's simply the extent to which man has free will. But these are things that are hotly contested. As a believer in Reformed theology, I hold that man's free will is checked by God's sovereignty and that it is not left to man's chance to decide things. Uh, This has been a belief of many since the days of the Reformation and even before. But others have disagreed. Godly men, and it's important to note that there are godly men who disagree. John Wesley would never agree with that. But it is important that from the Reformed theologians of his day, they counted him one of the most godly men and greatest followers of Jesus of their time. Paul goes on to further make the point of this, to to back up the historical factuality of the death, burial, and resurrection, pointing to the witnesses who experienced it. He says that he appeared to, to Cephas and then to the twelve. Some people say, well, the 12 wasn't the 12 because Judas had died and a replacement hadn't been picked. The 12 was simply the name that had been given to the disciples at that time. They were known colloquially as the 12, as that group. Um, Even though, yes, at that time, there was only 11 of them. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul is literally telling the Corinthians, go find one of these folks. There were 500 of them. They will testify to the truthfulness of what I've presented to you. Some have died, but many remain today. He appeared to James and to the apostles. His appearance to James, we don't have a record of, but it is clearly stated that he appeared to James and then to the apostle. And last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And this, of course, is on the road to Damascus, where he boldly charges Paul and says, Why are you persecuting me? Not the meeting that people would expect a a believer in, in, in a lie, in something false to have. I'm on my way to persecute these people. These people have corrupted the Jewish faith, and I'm going to arrest them, throw them in jail, and if some of them die, so be it. But on his way to Damascus, he is stopped dead in his tracks by the Lord Jesus, who then calls him to be his servant and to be his apostle to the Gentiles. He says, last is one untimely born. Many Christians wish they could have been alive in that day to see Jesus' miracles, to experience those things. We're told that we're blessed because we haven't seen it yet, we believe. But believing these things, what do we do with it? We are not to keep this to ourselves. This is not a classified briefing or a tightly held secret of confidence. This is a message we are called to bring to the people. The church is the gathering of the called out, the assembly of believers. It is the responsibility of the church to reach out to the people, to give them the gospel, to do as Paul did, to go into the places of this world, to go into the marketplaces, the squares, to go into our jobs via teleconference, and to share the gospel with people in our time. That is what we are commanded. We are to stand firm on the promise of this gospel and know that it is well-supported and well-defended. It was prophesied for thousands of years before it happened. It was recorded in 
in amazing detail by the people who witnessed it and by the people who spoke to those witnesses. And it was testified to by hundreds and thousands of people since as being true and factual. And it is this gospel, this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we must proclaim. Friends, we can't proclaim Calvinism to the world. Many good Calvinists will go to hell. Because again, they have theological assent without a love of the Savior who would be their master. You can know everything about the doctrines of grace and have not one ounce of salvation in you. We are not called to spread the gospel of Calvinism. It is true, as Spurgeon said, that Calvinism, it could be said, is simply the gospel and nothing else. But we aren't called to that. We are called to preach and to tell people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people and to call on them to accept that gospel. It is an offer of the gospel that has been made throughout time by the grace of God to people that he freely offered his son and that we have salvation in no other name. But what are we going to do? Do we sit on it? Do we keep it to ourselves? Are we worried about what people will think? It's hard. It's difficult. It is difficult. I go into an office every day where God is not feared. And people believe in their own toughness. And people believe that they're good enough to get by. And if I keep the message I have to myself, I am as good as, I, I, am, I am as wrong as I could possibly be. I know the truth. And for me to not share it, is is unexcusable. But I have. And I, just like everyone else, need to do better at sharing the truth that has been given to me. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this time. Help us to, to be bold in your witness, to share your word, to come before those who would who would mock us and spit in our faces and 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 speak ill of us, sue us. Help us to preach you at all times to them. Help us to use our words and our actions to bring your gospel to a cold world that is getting colder by the day. Lord, we ask you that as this time, strengthen your church, hold it together in the bonds of fellowship, even while we are not able to bond together. The the gathering of the believers for the Lord's Day worship is so important. And it is a blessing that we have the technological means to do this. But Lord, we earnestly pray that you will allow us to gather again in your church and that your people will be allowed to come together and worship you as the one who has given us every good thing. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.